business, leadership, high performance, the journey. All right, everybody, we have a fantastic show today. Uh, Super excited to talk a little bit of business today. Uh, We're really going to dive into the culture aspect uh, with a fantastic guest today uh, and also talking entrepreneurship and really diving into also just believing in yourself. Uh, So our guest today is a serial e-commerce entrepreneur. Uh, He founded Realtruck.com in 1998, which grew from the basement to over $100 in sales. And in the process, uh, received numerous awards for best place to work in the process. Uh, He's been an adjunct professor for digital marketing at the University of Jamestown in North Dakota, uh, an investor in several tech startups. Uh, He's the owner of Redheaded Rebel Storage, uh, published a book called Principles to Fortune, and recently uh, re-entered the truck accessory space again with rhrswag.com, which we're going to dive into toward the end of our episode here. But uh, his favorite saying is, anything is possible. So it's my pleasure to have the Redheaded Rebel on the show today. Uh, Scott Bintz, welcome. Uh, thank you. Nice so, here. Yeah, excited to have you on today. I know, Scott, when, when I was looking at launching this podcast, you were honestly one of the very first people I thought of because just knowing your story um, of building a business, selling a business, um, all the challenges along the way, uh, and getting the chance to meet with you uh, firsthand, I know when I drove over, met with you, uh, I believe it was a couple summers ago, just to pick your brain. I know a lot of people uh, won't take the time to meet with a complete stranger that really wants to ask a lot of questions. And and I, I just, I love people that will go out of their way, take the time to do something like that. And then I know also uh, we've both been together uh, speaking at a Disrupt HR event uh, and such as well. But uh, being an entrepreneur myself, uh, just super excited to have you on the show here. Awesome. Yeah. And I Thanks know, for thinking of me. yeah, you bet. And I know one of the big items uh, that we're going to dive into today is culture. And, and I know you hear that everywhere, you know, culture is so important to a business. So I'm really anxious to, to get your take on what is culture in a business and more so how do you build it, you know, and just the importance of, of what that really does for a business. But uh, before we dive into that, uh, I know, Scott, uh, you know, you've been in the automotive industry for a long time, involved with cars, car accessories, even uh, I know you're very heavily involved in racing as well. Uh, it seems to have been a theme throughout your business, but let's go back to let's go back to kind of your roots growing up in Minot, North Dakota, Scott, uh, where cars a big part of your life or an influence growing up. Um, only, uh, so much is getting from point A to point B, um, <laughs> and, uh, usually not having much money. So I drove clunkers and they were breaking down a lot, but, uh, no, I stumbled into truck accessories post-college, um, on the, uh, job hunt. So, okay. What, what was, what was your uh, first car, Scott? I think everybody wants to know that one. <laughs> it was, uh. A 74 Olds Omega, which kind of looked like the round Novas, you know, kind of the hot rod type, except it was, I bought it at a shady dealership, not (laughs) knowing that. And the transmission actually was, somehow they pieced it together where the transmission was an inch above the block of the motor. So it was like hobbled together and it broke down about a block from my house after I bought it. I was devastated. But my mom my mom knew a mechanic 
and uh, my mom knew a mechanic, and we're back to different So, <laughs> I think we've all had that experience of, like you said, the clunker, and it seems to be one of those first vehicles always. So, uh, but I know, uh, I, I know you drive some pretty hot rides now, though, correct? Uh, yeah, I have a couple. Yeah. All right, so let's so, let's. Uh, whoop, go ahead. Oh, uh, yeah. So anyway, but yeah, I, the, uh, the Porsche is probably, I have a Porsche. That's probably my favorite. However, my daughter bought a Subaru Crosstrek and for 25 grand that drives about as well as my Porsche and my Porsche costs a lot more, but anyway, that's a little off topic, yep. but uh, am, am I correct in saying that Subarus ha actually have Porsche engines, don't they? You know, I don't know. I should know that i've heard i've heard that before that they have like a, a porsche boxer engine or something like that subarus do that's why they're so that's why they're sweet rides not, not, i have i have some camaros too but um which i love i'm losing uh, you scott if you can hear me oh that again yeah i lost about the last 20 seconds there so uh, anyway i didn't want to come across as a uh import performance junkie so to speak <laughs> i love all american horsepower Camaros, race, dirt track, race cars, all of that good stuff too. So sweet. Well, tell me, tell me about growing up in Minot. What was it like as a kid? Um, what were your big influences? Well, I was kind of a troublemaker, so I didn't really fit in, and so I hung out with the troublemakers, which got me in trouble, um, which was made it a little harder on my mother, um, but. Uh, the good and bad of that is, is I kind of got into some trouble drinking, but I and went to treatment a few times because of it and got sober early. So I've been in recovery for years, and sometimes I'll do uh, share my experience with them. But I think my post uh, getting sober is kind of when. I mean, I was always kind of a worker, having jobs that, uh, but the game changer was when a friend of mine, kind of a mentor type, it said, well, what are you going to do? And I didn't really know. I didn't really even thought of college or anything like that. And he said, well, you're going to go to college. And I said, no. And he says, why not? And I said, well, I don't think I'm smart enough. And then he said, wait a minute. He said, if you were wanting to be an astronaut, there's probably only 100. I might look at you weird, but going to college, uh, it's not that hard because too many people have done it. And so he kind of gave me perspective on that. And then, of course, he also threw in, um, he goes, I think uh, people with a four-year degree um, will make a million dollars more in a lifetime, which that seemed like uh, a good byproduct as well. And so I went to school on a Pell Grant, and then I joined the National Guard, and they helped out with the GI Bill. And uh, again, not that you have to go to college. It, just, it was really good for me because it gave me opportunities I wouldn't have ordinarily had and exposed me to people that I might not have ordinarily uh, rubbed elbows with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I definitely think there's something to be said about the about the military as far as just the discipline and the accountability. Um, I've known a lot of people that uh, it's funny you kind of bring up, you know, got into trouble and uh, maybe hung out with the wrong crew of people and then they ended up entering the military. And 
after very, very quickly, even after basic training, you meet that person again and you go, holy smokes, is that the same guy that I even knew? Yeah, it's, uh, for those of uh, that might be go- uh, thinking about going into the military, it was a great experience. Again, it was National Guard, so I wasn't full-time, but um, it definitely was a uh, life-changing experience. So you realize you can do without a lot longer than you thought you could. <laughs> yep. So Without sleep, without a lot of things. So anyway. So... So you're in the in the military for roughly five or six years, and then your first sales job uh, was at Cellular One. And I laughed. Uh, you said you sold lots of brick phones. Yeah. So well, yeah, that was kind of what uh, I got. My first kind of real job post college was Cell One when the cellular boom was on. Did pretty good there. Um, that's what brought me to Jamestown because this market, we, we were selling phones pretty good in Minot, but Jamestown was on the struggle bus. So I came down here, rented an apartment over the phone because you didn't have internet then and set up shop and won some, I had this idea. We, I figured out the, I'm kind of, my and, um, patterns and in what influences and anyway i kind of studied the commission and bonus structure and figured out a few things and did essentially at that time we bought down the cost of the phone to get people to sign up for the service which is common practice today but then it wasn't so we just killed it on selling phones i'd set up some dealers and hired some salespeople and some awards well then i wound up the, the, the following year, getting demoted, it hurt my ego for doing an unauthorized promotion, <laughs> which my direct boss said she didn't know anything about, which she did, but she wasn't going to um, lay on the sword for me being a young kid, and she was in her 40s at the time, so I kind of understand why she threw me into the bus. Well, that hurt my feelings, and so I started looking for another job. And that's, I wound up getting a job at AgriCover, who at that time manufactured tarps and was just starting to manufacture a pickup cover for the back of pickups. And so I rolled in there in my Honda and somehow got that job. And that's what got me into the truck accessory arena. And the owner of that, uh, one of the owners, uh, Chuck, is what, laid groundwork for me to start real truck in my basement uh he was uh, allowed me to sell his products and and uh in 98 online drop shipping them and that's how we got going there so much gratitude to the agri cover and the access roll-up cover and of course now they make that company makes snow plows and truck racks and and mud flaps and a lot of stuff so mm-hmm. I know they've grown as well. Yeah, I know um, when you started Real Truck, I think, you know, one of the biggest blocks, I think, of so many to be entrepreneurs is, you know, the fear that holds you back of, you know, is this going to work out or the money that it takes to start uh, start a business? When you started Real Truck, I mean, you, like you said, you started it literally out of your basement. Was it something that you just started dabbling in to see if it was going to go or work? Or is it something that you really, really saw kind of a clear vision and future for and you really dove into full speed? 
<laughs> no, um, it was, it started the actual intent of it wasn't for me to sell truck accessories online. The initial intent was to set up a website to sell products online and talk all of my, I was, I had an independent rep firm. I'm not going to go into that, but essentially I called on a bunch of truck accessory stores and sold them truck accessories from a number of manufacturers. So I was trying to get, talk them in. I would clone the real truck website for them to sell all of their products, these brick and mortar stores. They had the people, they had the products, they had the money, they had the resources. And I well, I'll make more money because they'll sell more. And so, because I made a commission on all of the products, the manufacturers that I represented. And that was the initial intent. And I failed utterly at that because they were too busy with their right now business. And so I kept kind of whittling in the evenings on real truck, trying to make it better and sell more. And I'd go back and say, hey, we sold 10 grand this month and you can too. Do you want to do it? And nobody was interested. They all said, nobody's going to buy that online and this and that, you know, all of the, any new idea, you always get a lot of objections. And, you know, when I talk to young entrepreneurs is that, when you throw out an idea, what's going to happen is, is everybody's going to tell you why it won't work and, and list out all the obstacles. Now, I don't think they do that because they're, they're against you. They're doing it in a manner where they think it's helpful, but sometimes it'll delay you doing things because it'll be like, you know, I remember even when I thought about writing a book, um, I, I was talking to a friend about it. And he says, well, you're not an author. And I thought, yeah, he's right. Shit, I'm not an author. Excuse my language. And <laughs> that I didn't write. I did so. T- I I just didn't do anything about it. And then another year went by, and I thought I really want to tell the real truck story. And there's too many authors out there, so it can't be that hard. And so, and then busted out a book again. I'm still wouldn't call myself an author per se, but I did share the story of building the culture and what we what it took to take it things. Uh, to the next level at real truck. And if I were to write a book today, I would write a book that says that if you don't nourish the culture, it will die because of course that's what the real truck doesn't have much of a culture now, like it used to. And of course it shows in the customer reviews. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You bring up, unfortunately, yeah, you bring up a fantastic point, Scott, about, you know, there are people that will absolutely doubt you and they'll tell you you can't. They'll question you as to who do you think you are. You know, I think I think a large majority of people think, man, it'd be so cool to write a book. But very, very, very few people ever do. And I think part of it is just the self-doubt, you know. And I know in your book, Principles, uh, Principles of Fortune, you actually have an omitted chapter, right, called The Doubtful Passenger, where you really dive into right into detail on just overcoming the self-doubt. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think we all battle with self-doubt, self-doubt, and then, of course, the world around us sometimes. And again, I don't think it's people against us. It's just they tend to rattle off all of the obstacles, and it becomes overwhelming. And so I'm one that, like, just roll, just start. Just move it forward. I mean, even in 
just move it forward. And um, the um, because it's in the moving, it, you know, the nobody's inspired all, at all times. It's going to be inspiration is going to come and go like the wind. You don't know when you're going to have it. And when you're inspired, you want to rock and roll, whether you have all the pieces together or not. Now, that might be a little bit differently if you were building a jet, obviously, but um, there's a little bit more to it. But in, for most people, most everyday entrepreneurs, it just you got to get started, and that'll propel you to the next level. And um, and then don't you know? I I learned early on, even when Real Truck started, like I'd taken I had a concentration in accounting, and what I learned from that is that I don't like accounting, and um, and so immediately with Real Truck, this is when we were keying in. When we get an order, we'd have to key it in. We'd have to punch in all the credit card numbers in the old uh, punch-in machine. And I would I had a smart buddy from college, and I called him and said, hey, do you want to do the books? And so I'd literally mail him everything once a week, and then he'd put it in QuickBooks and send it back to me, you know, and, wow. and cut the checks and all of that, <laughs> where, uh, you know, get good people around you to help where you – on things you don't want to do or aren't good at because you'll get way more bang for the buck focusing on what you're good at, whatever that might happen to be. Yeah, that idea of, of delegating to elevate yourself. And, um, you know, I know you bring up a great point, Scott. I think, you know, a lot of people will try to, especially those that are closest to you, I think they, you know, sometimes it comes off as negative, as doubt, you know, but I think everybody wants to try to play the expert role you know, and questioning whether you can or can't do something. And I think a lot of times, too, those closest to you, you know, that love you the most think they're protecting you from failure or preventing you from failure by saying, oh, you know, maybe you shouldn't do that. Maybe you can't do that. So how did you, I mean, how did you really overcome that? And what really pushed you? I mean, because something had to have kept pushing you to keep going uh, to build that machine that it really became. Well, I think, one, I'm stubborn, and two, I hang in there longer probably than the sane people do. So, and I, I would, I think um, I'm pretty persistent. So meaning even when I was in sales, you would have some people that would be calculated and they say, okay, I'm going to call on the two biggest accounts and try to close them. And they'll work on it and work on it and work on it. And I would approach it of like, okay, I can do eight sales calls a day. And I know if I do eight calls, I'll get one dealer. So I would just, I would do eight, I would do eight sales calls a day. And that was kind of my little algorithm have you. And I would always get one new dealer a day when I was working for someone else. And I think that same kind of, I've always had that same kind of tenacity and um, and I don't know where it comes from. It's just I'm wired that way where um, not like don't tell me I can't do this, watch me, but more so of that, um, one, there's got to be an easier way to do this, and two is that, it, you know, it, it, um, I think a lot of people give up before they get going, you know, and it's just, it's just easy to do because there's always going to be more reasons not to do something than there are. Are And I think growing up poor, 
I've never had anything to lose. I remember I used to scare people when, when real truck was whatever, 25 million. And, and I would say this and everybody in the room would look at me weird. And I said, well, if, if, um, in the aspect of like, if this doesn't work out, I could always detail cars for a living. You follow me? Like I could always keep the lights on Mm -hmm. by detailing cars. It's been my backup plan for 30 years um, because I learned a long time ago I really don't want to work for someone else. So, um, granted, I nothing wrong with that, but my point meaning in the aspect of it's not a really big thing if it fails because nobody's going to remember it, and you're going to, you know, you're always going to have more failures than you are successes in that. Even in business, there's micro failures, right? At Real Truck, one, at one time, 40% of the data was car data, and it represented 2% of the sales. So it's like, why are we selling car stuff? We don't sell it, and we got a lot of work into trying mm-hmm. to. But we, in that case, we didn't really escape the name. And so even in those kind of things, in in inside of business there's these micro failures that happen all the time learn from them move on no big deal yeah no doubt as an entrepreneur i mean you have to have some extremely thick skin and some resiliency because as you mentioned you will you absolutely will be guaranteed failure after failure after Mm -hmm. failure and it's just you know i always tell um businesses individuals that i work with i always say it's just a matter of who's willing to keep going you know, and, and you put it perfectly, Scott, when you said you could always do something else. You know, you could always find another job. You could always, you know, be the working for the man, you know, per se. But it's that entrepreneurial spirit of overcoming those failures and keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing with that with that vision in mind of what you really want to tackle or really want to accomplish that I think, man, it just sets it sets the entrepreneurial mindset apart from everybody else. Yeah, and, and I think, like all things, you know, there's things that can speed up the learning curve and that. And sometimes, you know, ideas and actions, it's, sometimes it's just timing, too, meaning sometimes an idea might be too early or, some, you know, where, like, sometimes you got to repackage and try again. And often things evolve. Real Truck started as a website to clone for truck accessory stores to slap their logo on it and sell. And that didn't pan out at all. You follow me? And it turned into something mm-hmm. totally different, turned into, into its own brand, its own company. And even along the way, um, lots of different things going on there that we've jumped into and jumped out of and et cetera, et cetera. And even on the, how we got to culture was when we were about 8 million it's kind of covered in the book, Good to Great, but when we we're about 8 million, I was like, what are we doing here exactly? Like, what is our purpose? Mm-hmm. What is our, and I couldn't really answer that other than more, you know, more products, more employees, more, 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 for why exactly? Yep. And um, now, obviously, at that point, there was some cool things that happened, you know, we did a million in sales and then 2 million and growing as a company. And, and so there was a lot of good things entrepreneurial, but it was, it, 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 
um, when I ran across Zappos, I was impressed because they sold a billion dollars worth of shoes. They weren't the cheapest, and they had a really good company culture. And I thought about just a lot of things like culture is so important, and it's going to develop with or without your input. Sports teams have it. Families have it. You know, communities have it. Um, colleges have it. Businesses have it. Departments within businesses have it. And it tends to... If it's not nurtured, it tends to gravitate towards being competitive and cutthroat. Point in case, if you remember Bounty Gate with the New Orleans Saints, where they were paying players mm, yep. bonuses for hurting other players. That was a culture thing. They did. They spent millions of dollars, and they came back and said, well, that's a product of culture. You know, the culture to win was so great that it became totally cool that internally they operated where they were paying players bonuses to hurt other players, and it was totally cool internally. And it was only until it was shared externally and they got socially shamed that they <laughs> did anything about it, right? Yeah. They, they didn't even know on their own barometer, on their own internal culture. It didn't even, you know, and I think, um, and I think you got to nourish it, nourish nourish it tony shea from zappos which i think he's retiring now i heard or something but just, anyway yeah just um, in august i think he stepped away but um you know it's kind of like anything you got to keep nourishing it otherwise it'll it'll die you know the i kind of watched um after i sold real truck we sold it with an award-winning culture i kind of sold because i thought it needed to go to smarter people than me that I was tapped out. I would probably have a different opinion of that now, but um, it needed smarter people in the room and it needed, and, um, but, you know, what the driving force is profit and more sales. And so it kind of turned into a very different company culturally. And I think it shows probably in the cult, the, um, the customer experience because, um, I've seen some review, you know, it's just sad almost where I've seen some reviews where it's uh, the, uh, a thousand reviews and it'll be 1.5 stars out of 10. I, I don't even know how you do that bad oh. exactly, but um, the, uh, but they sell a lot, you know, but um, the, uh, but I think that, you know, employ, you know, employees and being a part of a cause greater than themselves and, contribution and taking care of business partners and customers. And I think that's where it's at. Um, personally, that's what, I mean, we bet it all on culture at real truck and it, at that time, and it panned out, uh, well for growing the company and so forth. Again, like all things, sometimes you do things differently, but, um, I think it's huge. And sometimes it's one of those things where, um, where we get so busy, we forget about that. But the, the, the real value of culture and having guiding principles is that it helps you make decisions. You know, like in the case of even with RHR Swag now, is we have uh, guiding principles, seven of them. I added one to the one that we formally use, but deliver more to customers, partners, and to each other. So again, you just got to ask the question, is this 
delivering more? Is this transparent? Is this improving it? Is this taking risks? Is this is including fun? Is this being humble? Is this uh, being passionately determined? You know, that kind of helps guide a company with the decision-making process because you can't write a rule for everything. Yeah, Corporate I- America does, but corporate America does, but um, uh, that's how you wind up with some messed up rules and policies. Yeah, I think it's so important. Uh, doesn't matter if your business is just starting or whether you've been around a long time. You know, I always use the phrase values filter. You know, do you, do you run every decision you make through that values filter of who you are, what you want to be about, you know, of what your values are. And then next you look at your core focus, you know, do things really fall in line with your purpose, your cause, your passion, you know, like you said, how important that is to find your big why, you know, I think, and I, a lot of businesses, I think, miss the boat with that because they are concerned about chasing profit or, uh, you know, mainly probably that, and they forget about who they really are, or they make decisions that are driven more uh, by profit rather than the impact. And, And they really end up playing the short game rather than the long game. And then they end up hitting that ceiling where you're really forced to stop, take a look at yourself, dissect yourself and go, what the hell's going on? What's the problem? Right. And I think, and I'm not, I, you know, a company has to have profit. There's no, it's, I have always, I'd read it somewhere and I just, it made perfect sense. You know, profits like blood to the human body, it's required for life, but it's not the purpose of life. And so a, oh, I love a company needs to have, it needs to have profit. Um, and, so um, there's a lot of other things that go into that too, and so um, the uh, so it it doesn't. And again, I think uh, Tony Shea Zappos and other companies that have really gotten into culture have proven that ultimately it'll help the bottom line. Although sometimes it's hard to draw a uh, a math equation to show how how does the culture um, impact profit again i'm sure there's some research i know there's research on it that shows that it does uh impact it in a positive way but again it's at a local level within your own business it's sometimes hard to measure but i can tell you that um when it's rocking it is life-changing for everybody it affects and it's a really cool thing to see yeah, it is. Um, it is so hard to put a metric to that. You know, how do you truly, truly measure that other than what you see in the day to day? You know, what you hear from your customers, what you see going or from your employees as well, not just your customers. But I know the the person you keep referring to, Tony Shays, was a CEO visionary of Zappos. And and the book that I know has been a big resource for you and that you kind of speak highly of is Delivering Happiness, right? Yep, that. I mean, I kind of I, I like um you know, the good to great book series too. Um, you know, if, if you initially, because delivering happiness wasn't out, I don't think at the time, but Tony had initially, there's some initial books that he was, I mean, I think he's an avid reader. So I probably read a few libraries, uh, but, um, the good to great tribal leadership, uh, peak where great companies get their mojo. Some of those books have a lot of the, uh, the, the, a lot of the ingredients on where Zappos kind of first got started. And, um, the, uh, 
the um, and of course even the good to rate kind of somewhat comes back to the great companies um, tend to have better cultures and um, obviously uh, he's written a bunch of books after that how the mighty fall um, et cetera et cetera but nonetheless there's some good stuff in there. So if, if you had to pick, I mean, two or three things, so some really concrete takeaways for somebody that is, whether they're starting a business, trying to establish a culture, maybe it's somebody stepping into a business, trying to revamp a culture, what would be maybe the top two or three things you you would say, Scott, that uh, a leader, whether CEO, manager, whatever it may be, really needs to focus on to build an effective, um, high-performing culture? Well, I, I think it probably starts with questions. So I'm sure, you know, you obviously help businesses, right? And you go in and sometimes they've got values or principles on the wall, right? Mm-hmm. Well, are they actually practicing them? So an example would be if you have a, um, a uh, value of loyalty, like, well, are we being loyal? Are we... Or uh, to use it an example I'm more familiar with would be deli- we want to deliver more to customers, partners, or employees. Well, ask the question, where are we not delivering more to our customers? Mm-hmm. Where are we falling short? Where are we not even status quo? Um, uh, what can we do to deliver more to our customers? What can we do to deliver more to our employees? Where aren't we delivering? How about our business partners? What can we do to deliver more? Where are we not? Where are we falling short? And then getting that to see where you're at and start whittling away at the shortcomings and enhancing or implementing um, some of the ways to deliver more. And that's kind of the big thing when it comes to culture is to start. It's always going to be a work in progress. It's never going to be perfection. Yep. It's always going to be a work in progress. And so first, where are you at? And then start whittling it. And rather than it, it, we, it, it real truck, we tried to implement it twice. It was the second time we were successful. First time we wrote them on, put them on the wall. Nobody practiced them. Second time we didn't write them on the wall. We started asking questions about them and really focused on one value for a couple of months, company-wide. We had meetings on it, departments had meetings, et cetera, et cetera. It's in, I'm not trying to push my book, but it, how we did it is in the book, Principles of Fortune, mm-hmm. and that talks about how we begin to get that rolling and some of the questions we ask. As far as, uh, I think the same thing would apply uh, if you're taking over a new department or company would be to ask questions because oftentimes you're, you have the answers are within the company. Mm-hmm. They just aren't being heard. Yeah. And, um, the, uh, and then as far as entrepreneurs, I think you always want to have for the entrepreneurial spirit, so to speak, is you want to keep that alive. And I tend to, when I get discouraged, I tend to read books that uh, I, you know, I like, you know, like sometimes people, there's a lot of great people uh, that uh, past and present. And if you read some autobiographies, 
it's amazing. Like everybody's not everybody, but you sometimes you see the Abraham Lincoln deal where it talks about all his failures and then he mm-hmm. became president. But that's everybody's story, yeah. right? But you don't see it because when you look back in history, sometimes you just see the success, yep. right? The overnight success, um, right? I think I could be wrong about this or miss, uh, but I think it was like William James was like a a total failure till he was in his 40s and then he went on to revolutionize his area of expertise. But you wouldn't know that if you just, you follow me, just look at the highlights mm-hmm. that he was painter and doing the Amazon and failed at that. And he was just all sorts of stuff. And um, before, uh, it's not... Uh, uh, the uh, psychology, it's, uh, I'll remember his name in a minute. I'm thinking of the wrong person. But anyway, my point is, sometimes you, people don't have perspective on that if you just read someone's resume, so to speak, um, of the battle scars or the, nope, this ain't it, experiences. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I think um, I love what you said about um the self-awareness piece is so big for a company because I think, I think, I think a lot of companies do make that mistake of, you know, they come up with some generic values. They don't talk about the big why behind them. They're just words that are on a wall and are they truly living them or not? You know, I would say large majority are probably not, you know, I've walked into companies before where I ask, do they have values? They say, yes, we do. I say, Oh, what are they? Not one person on the name on the team could even name them. And they're hanging on the wall, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a different in a different part of the right. office or something. So, yeah, it's it's, it's amazing. Right. You know, that is the big difference, you know, just being self-aware and actually living them. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, make that mistake, too, of, you know, why do we have to dive into value so deeply? You know, it's just it's just kind of fluff. But it's like, man, it is truly who you are and what you are about. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, I think what happens is people pick up things tribally, which oftentimes is misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. And then when it's shared, it's, um, it's blown out of proportion. You yep. know, in the book, I share the story about how when we were growing so fast, we rented the space upstairs and we we're remodeling it. And, and all, me and a couple of other people knew about it. And the next thing you know, I walk in and uh, uh, an employee's mad at me because the uh, he'd heard that we're building a I love Scott Benz office upstairs, 10,000 square feet, <laughs> and none of us are going to get a raise for two years because of it. And the reality of it is, is that I, as the leader, should have transmitted, hey, we rented the space upstairs. We're, we're building more offices because we're growing, blah, blah, blah. We're going 100 miles an hour, blah, blah, and kind of, and, but I didn't do that. And so people just were speculating. And by the time the speculation rolled through the company, it had everybody deduced that nobody was getting raises and I was going to have a, I love Scott Benz, 10,000 square foot office, which none of it was true, but it all started from one person talking to another person, talking to another person. Yep. And that's where even, you know, communication and having a, um, you know, being a kind of a transparent company, um, I think is huge. Yeah. Then you, then you go into fire extinguisher mode, trying to, trying to squelch everything that's floating around the office. But 
So, I mean, obviously you, yeah. you, you established a hell of a culture at real truck, you know, the business grew. I mean, you, you broke the hundred million dollar mark, which is a, a dream for most businesses, I would say. And then walk me through, you ended up selling it. So, yeah, we, it, it was growing and, and, um, I kind of felt like it was, um, I'd looked at, I, uh, maybe, uh, selling it to the employees. And I looked at, I just thought my leadership was tapped. We're getting pretty big. We're, you know, like I've always looked at myself as this average everyday guy. And so when, if you think about how, you know, the company was getting big and like, boy, you know, we need smarter people in the room. And, um, I couldn't see myself of like, turning over the company and watching and, and anyway, and, and also balancing that, you know, being set for life, you know, that kind of a thing with family. And so we're looking for someone to uh, sell to that would, you know, take real truck to the next level and on all facets. And I thought we found that company and, they had a tendency of buying companies and letting them run and investing in them and et cetera, et cetera. And, um, that, uh, I think, you know, they've grown real truck bigger than what it was. Um, but I don't know that, um, they certainly haven't really paid too much attention to, uh, culture and there's a lot of good people there too. So I'm not, but one of the reasons I decided to get back into pickup accessories was, that um, I think that, you know, most of the space is call for the world's best deal and um, and uh, a lot of things that are, you know, that have um, rigid return policies with crazy restock fees and just like I think in the space there's room for a company that really wants to create a good customer experience like we did back in the day. And so we'll see how it goes. So far, we've had quite a bit of success, and um, and so um, you know, I think like I remember I was dabbling when I was in college. I was thinking about going to law school, and um, someone had said, "Well, there's a lot of attorneys." And then I thought, oh, "Okay, yeah, well, they're right." So you know, no law school for me because there's a lot of attorneys. And then someone else said, mm -hmm. "There's always room for a good one." There's always room for a good one mm -hmm. of anything. And I think like whatever space someone's in, um, yeah, there's competition and all that, uh, which makes us better, but there's always room for a good one in any space. Yep. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I know. I yeah. I, I want to dive into the your new your new company RHR Swag here in a minute. But uh, backing up, what was the hardest part of letting go of real truck? You know, I mean, when it's when it's something that you've well, built, when you've nourished it, when you've created that, it's kind of your baby. Um, what was it like? I mean, well, sell, selling the company. Um, well, initially it was a good one. You know, I mean. Um, got a bunch of money, bought my mom a Cadillac, um, did all, you know, when, um, I'd helped the parent company with their website a little bit. So I was 
doing a little help there. And yep. then, uh, and then, um, I just didn't like how they were starting to run the company. And of course, I'm sure I'm not the first or nor will I be the last, um, former owner that doesn't like how his company or brand is being ran and that's complaining about it. And I felt like, um, my, um, voice was not being heard. So I left. Uh, and then I think you go through the grieving process. You wouldn't think you'd go through the grieving process, but you go through the, um, you go through the, the normal grieving process process and if you're lucky you get to uh the acceptance side mm-hmm. like you've got you go through denial and anger and um all of that kind of stuff and i think i'm on the acceptance side of it is what it is and um you know hope you know i i i still hope that they will uh perhaps do things differently than what they are now um, and their, what their customers say about them will be the gauge of that. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what their employees say, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, I think it was, it was hard for a while and, um, just, you know, I mean, there was uh, people that were my friends that were being treated badly or thrown off the bus. There was, you know, just, weird policies being implemented there, you know, like just in most of it from my eyes, again, not having an inside seat, but from my eyes is all about the almighty dollar and making, um, the investors owners more money with not much regard for people. But that's obviously that's a, a one-sided opinion of someone who doesn't have an inside view. So who knows? You follow me, meaning mm-hmm. who knows? Um, obviously, the bigger the company, bigger a company gets, the hard. It's not a speedboat anymore, or a rowboat. So it's hard to turn, it's hard to shift, hard to adjust. Um, and I think, um, again, on the, the 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 culture front, it's just easy to get busy working where you forget about it. Mm-hmm. I know. I'm you know, a- in our. Whoop! Go ahead, Scott. Um, I was, you know, in our, we see in Fargo with the bison, you know, they have a culture in that bison football team, how they practice. It is ingrained in them, in meaning. And, and of course, that's probably why they always had a lot of success. Yeah, actually, just last week, I had Jim Kramer, the uh, head strength coach for NDSU on here. Um, so not sure where that will pop up in our in our order of uh, shows here, but yeah, it was really interesting talking to him about just the establishment of culture and mental toughness and and a lot of those similarities from athletics that carry over to business, but also a lot of things that are very very different. Um, and uh, I'm a big silver linings guy, Scott. I'm always trying to find the lesson uh, that was learned in things, um, the positive. Um, what was the biggest learning experience that you were able to take uh, just from the entire real truck experience from the birth of it to nurturing that thing, to selling it, to seeing it turn into something that wasn't maybe so great anymore. Uh, what was the biggest, biggest takeaway? Oh, wow. I'm, I think there's so many, I don't know. I mean, I, I, uh, I mean, I think it's, 
it's a good thing to have really good people around you. Um, and because it's not something I could have done on my own, period. I mean, I get a lot of juice for it, but the reality of it is um, it takes a lot of people to make something like that happen. And um, so I think the biggest takeaway is what it goes, you know, like um, I think goes back to kind of a, maybe a higher power thing of, you know, God didn't make us great. All of us, you know, I'm not, no one person's great at everything. And I think he made us that way. So we would need each other. Mm -hmm. And it's a good example of how a lot of things have to come to place to make something like that happen. And my real role was helping people understand uh, uh, various, um, that everybody is a part of the making the process. You know, we win together or we lose together, period. And oftentimes you have uh, different people that put more value on different things, but what's more important, customer service or accounting or sales or web develop, like web de what, like you need them all. They all gotta like, if that makes sense. So that's kind of, um, aspect of how it all connects together so to speak but yeah there, I, there are so many lessons i don't know if i could yeah. quantify it into one <laughs> yeah um, yeah i think one of the biggest yeah. ones well that, I, oh, go ahead. The, the bigger one bigger one is when you sell your company it if it ain't in writing <laughs> it ain't happening so um <laughs> meaning Meaning in the aspect of like all bets are off. It doesn't matter if they say they care about culture. It don't, you know, if it ain't in writing, it ain't happening, so to speak, in the contract. Mm -hmm. But, um, but I think that's, uh, um, I was, I think in retrospect, the reason uh, nobody really cared what I thought about it is that when you're, when someone else buys your company, I think they automatically assume they're smarter than you. Mm-hmm. Yep. I won't argue that they one. And um, I think, um, I guess time will tell, but um, I've been an underdog my whole life. So the rhrswag.com uh, and doing truck accessories is going to be really fun because now it is truly, when I started, it was, Everybody was on equal playing ground, um, but um, I think uh, my former brand will, uh, it would have been uh, probably easier on them and cost them less if they would have listened to me five years ago. Mm-hmm. Because so uh, the e-commerce anyway it'll be interesting i mean what i'm trying to do on this round two so to speak or rhr swag is create a company that has a really great customer experience and grow it get the management team in place and begin selling it to the employees so they can be the um the leader of their destiny rather than uh a couple of really rich guys that you never meet <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I know you and I are both big Jim Collins fans, obviously, when we you bring up good to great and the bus and all the analogies there. What's the big BHAG for RHR? Is it that? Is it to really create something just fantastic and turn it over to the employees? Well, I th- that's what the ideal is at this point. I mean, I, that was one of the things I looked at for real truck and it kind of came back from the accounting department of like, ah, it's really hard to do an employee owned company and a lot of paperwork and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, I mean, I think that's kind of the, um, initial goal is to get it built up and rock in and get everything in place and then uh, begin that process. But I think you got to get the management and leadership in place and that's going to take some time and um and um you know the uh not obviously some past employees are uh reaching out and coming on board others aren't so obviously there's a lot of things you know to start at this stage of the game an e-commerce company um the nice thing is there's a lot of tools that are already developed uh, at the same token, there's a lot of pieces that got to come together uh, that aren't. So, but it's been fun. I mean, out of the gates, we've, uh, I think we got, you know, we started in whatever it was, May, and I think we're at 12 or 13 employees now, and we're, we're uh, growing, and, and we got, you know, brands that want to be on our website. So that's a good thing. We got more employees that want to work for us than what we can hire at the moment. So that's good. And, um, and it's been exciting, you know, again, it's a little more, uh, it's different five years later. Um, so, uh, different, different, uh, environment and e-commerce, but like all things, I think we'll, we'll get back to learning how to do it well. Awesome. Well, I know, I know I'm personally, uh, looking forward to following your success and have definitely, followed very closely just kind of the birth of RHR swag and, and where you guys are going and the hires that you're looking at making and such. So, but uh, yeah, thanks Scott so much uh, for, for hopping on here today. I know you bring up some fantastic points for business owners, managers, leaders around the concept of team and working together, getting the right people on the bus, um, how important those cultures values really are in your organization. And probably most importantly, you know, your big why and really diving into that as far as what are you about um, and what's the impact that you really want to want to make as an organization. So uh, where can our listeners uh, find you, Scott, and follow you? Um, well, I'm on most of the social media, I guess, um, and uh, have, uh, of course, there's rhrswag.com. And, um, but, yeah, I'm on most of the social media or whatever, uh, Facebook and uh, LinkedIn and I tend to be uh, sporadic there or whatever, but um, nonetheless. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Scott, for hopping on here. Um, all of our listeners, make sure you check out rhrswag.com for those truck accessories um, and really watch the growth of an exciting, uh, exciting company. Um, you can also check out RHR Storage. I know Scott is involved in uh, storage units as well. And then and definitely check out his book, uh, Principles of Fortune. So with that, uh, everybody, don't forget to follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook at Patrick Metzger Coaching. And uh, thanks so much for listening to this episode. Uh, Be sure to subscribe to, rate the podcast five stars. 
Uh, and as always, show notes from today, you can find those on the website at patrick-metzger.com. And lastly, uh, take a screenshot of today's show. Tag myself, tag Scott in there, uh, and share it with somebody that needs maybe needs to hear today's message around your big why um, uh, and around establishing a, a healthy, high-performing culture. So uh, until next time, uh, I want to remind everybody to own you and the journey.